0: The following episode is brought to you by the American Urological Association. The American Urological Association is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. For more information on how to claim CME credit or to view faculty disclosures, please visit the AUA University at auanet.org university independent educational grant support for this episode was provided by myovant sciences ltd and pfizer inc good evening my name is jay raman and i'm professor of urology at penn state health and chair of the aua's office of education it's my pleasure to host another one of our podcasts in our educational podcast series with this specific podcast titled Advances in Androgen Deprivation Therapy, a guide for urologists and APPs, specifically focusing on health equities and variations in advanced prostate cancer care. It's really my pleasure today to host Dr. Kristen Scarpato and Dr. Chad Rich. Dr. Scarpato is Associate Professor of Urology, uh, focusing in urologic oncology at the Vanderbilt University Medical Center, where she's also the residency program director, Dr. Rich is associate professor of urology uh, as well as urological oncology at the desai Safety Urolog- Urology Institute at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. Uh, Kristen, Chad, uh, first of all, thank you so much for taking some time uh, this evening and joining me. Really, our pleasure to have you here um, to talk to our audience.
1: Thanks so much. It's it's great to be here. Thanks for so having me.
2: So,
0: um, I, I think, Kristen, maybe I'll, I'll just start with you. And uh, I, I guess before we really sort of go into some of the details regarding health equities and, and variations of care, maybe just start us off at the 20,000 foot level, which is um, really what is advanced prostate cancer? What, what, you know, define it for us a little bit. And I think hopefully that'll level set our audience as to you know what we're talking about before we go into some of the the more nuanced discussion on on uh, race, for example and um, and and variations in care.
1: Yes, I'd be happy to. I love prostate cancer, and I realize that not everyone maybe shares that sentiment. but as urologists, we have to be aware of the fact that, Prostate cancer is the most commonly diagnosed cancer, in males in the United States makes up almost a third of newly diagnosed cancers each year and is a leading cause of cancer mortality. And so we really have to understand that prostate cancer, particularly advanced prostate cancer, is is complex. And whenever I hear the, the term or the phrase rapidly evolving, my brain immediately goes to prostate cancer because advanced prostate cancer certainly is rapidly evolving. And I think it's really important for urologists to have that 30,000-foot view of exactly what it is. I think the AUA has done a really nice job with the 2020 guideline, which is now being updated or amended, I should say, because it's so rapidly evolving, defining the different disease states. And I think of it as four separate categories, where you have uh, patients with biochemical recurrence who have exhausted all local therapy. That's one one of the buckets. Then you have metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer, and then castration-resistant prostate cancer which is broken into non-metastatic and metastatic. Um, and so each of these different buckets has different um, treatment guidelines associated with them. Um, oh, it's also important to consider further risk stratification. So if is this patient who is presenting are they de novo metastatic or is this someone who has progressive disease and has already been treated with a radical prostatectomy or radiation therapy? And then further categorizing patients into high volume and low volume disease. And that is based on um, what we consider the, the charted definition and takes into account the presence of visceral metastases or the number of bone metastases um, with at least one of four being outside of the vertebral column and pelvis. And then we also consider um, high risk versus low risk based on some latitude data. So it all really sounds kind of complex, but clearly defining these disease states and, and categorizing the patient in front of you into a specific bucket then helps and I say that understanding that every patient is unique and has different comorbid conditions and is kind of coming from coming from different um, backgrounds, but having those buckets to sort of categorize patients broadly and then um, understand what treatments may be best for them is really important. And so um, I, I do think that the the guideline is is very helpful with for my own thinking, and that's how I talk to the residents when they're you know counseling patients is to just, Kind of review that and have an understanding of these four, four states.
0: Sure. And, and I mean, I think um, you, you, you phrased it very well. And, and I feel like this is one of the more intimidating areas. Um, when you get to advanced disease, I think for urologists in general and urologic practitioners, whether it's prostate, like we're talking about here, or kidney or bladder, I think some of this starts to get a little bit intimidating just because it's out of, you know, the, the conventional wheelhouse of, you know, what what we historically perhaps did. But I mean, I think it sort of highlights that um, in urologic practices, whether it be urologists or even APCs, frankly, because so many of these advanced, uh, for example, prostate cancer clinics, the day-to-day operations are really run by advanced practice clinicians under you know the supervision and in partnership with urologists but you know that really brings us to so what what should we know um, what therapy should we be familiar with and, and again as you alluded to it's changing constantly so maybe just give us some high-level concepts of what we should know um, as urologists or urologic practitioners with regards to treating advanced prostate cancer
1: sure I think most of us are aware that prostate cancer is a very hormonally active and hormonally responsive disease. And that's based on the work from Huggins and Hodges er early on. And so the name of the game with advanced prostate cancer is to lower testosterone. And we can do that with surgical castration or um, bilateral simple orchiectomy, which in many ways may be easier and and simpler for patients. And um, if we, you know, get into financial toxicity, maybe a sort of more economical uh, way to to manage prostate cancer. But there are certainly um, many drugs that are available. Um, ADT, I think, is something that urologists and advanced practice providers should be well versed in. Um, There's kind of broadly... LHRH agonists like luprolide that um, we can give in in an injection form. And um, that may be given together with um, a first-generation antiandrogen because of the associated testosterone flare. And then there are LHRH antagonists like Degarelix or relugolix, which do not need to be given with another agent because there is no associated testosterone flare, but these agents really are the backbone of therapy for patients who have advanced prostate cancer. And if I can make one point, I think that we should all now in this evolved landscape, be aware of the fact that ADT monotherapy is not something that we should be routinely giving anymore. Rarely. I would say, potentially for that first space that I talked about, patients who have biochemical recurrence and have exhausted all local therapy, some of those patients may be appropriate for intermittent ADT, um, not necessarily compromising oncologic outcomes, which is very important, but maybe uh, maintaining a, a more favorable quality of life. Um, And then certainly in patients who have localized disease and are getting radiation, then we can provide ADT monotherapy. But every other patient should have some combination of ADT and and something else. And so I think urologists and APPs need to be aware that there is is that something else category. And a lot of attention has been put on these um, androgen receptor targeted therapies. So again, prostate cancer, very hormonally active or responsive disease, and so targeting the androgen receptor can have a significant um, benefit. So we have second-generation antiandrogens like apalutamide, enzalutamide, and darolutamide, or androgen metabolism inhibitors like abiraterone. And some urologists and APPs are, are comfortable managing These medications or putting patients on these medications in their clinics, but certainly there's a lot more to consider when doing that lab testing um, patient comorbidities. And so I think having an awareness that these medications are important for patients with advanced prostate cancer and having a mechanism to work um, with colleagues in medical oncology and primary care to facilitate getting these agents to patients, which we know improves outcomes in survival, um, can be uh, really important if we're not doing it in our own practices. And then I would say, you know, that again, urologists also need to have an awareness of the fact that patients in this advanced prostate cancer state may need chemotherapy, and often it's, it's docetaxel for these patients in combination with ADT and sometimes also in combination triplet therapy or intensified therapy with um, androgen receptor targeted therapies. And then finally, I would say that, you know, in this rapidly evolving space, we have to be aware that for patients with more advanced disease, PARP inhibitors may be important and immunotherapy may be important. And those are are not things that urologists are are typically managing in, in our own clinics, but, um, we do counsel patients and they do rely on us for all things prostate cancer often. And so having some baseline knowledge about them is really important.
0: That's great. No, I, th- I think you laid it out really so well. So, so Chad, you know, maybe I'll turn to you now and, and sort of, you know, the, the, the goal of this podcast is really uh, twofold. One is obviously introducing the concept of band prostate cancer, but then Really, I think, you know, pivoting a little bit more and talking about health equities and variations in care and, and maybe with the framework that Kristen sort of provided with regards to advanced prostate cancer. Um, maybe I'll ask you a little bit about the impact of race and, and maybe race with regards to both diagnosis and presentation of disease, but also maybe um, receipt of, of um, receipt of therapy for, for these conditions.
2: Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Jay. And thanks for having me again. Um, So Kristen really nicely outlined all the different therapies and the different disease states. And of course, you know, first and foremost, when a patient presents to you, you um, categorize them, just as Kristen said, into castration sensitive um, versus castration resistant, advanced prostate cancer, and you go through the different therapies. Um, When it comes to race, what's what's important to keep in mind and a take home from this podcast, if anything, when we talk about race and prostate cancer, is that number one um, black men present uh, at a younger age and uh, usually with more aggressive disease than white men with prostate cancer Um, incidence of prostate cancer is higher in black men than it is in in white men Um, and then from there when you look at how that impacts mortality so the mortality rate for black men is over two-fold higher than white men with uh, prostate cancer so when you're talking about treating the most advanced states of prostate cancer you know, if there is any uh, inequity at all in receipt of these types of therapies, um, it's gonna likely have a big impact on widening that mortality gap. And if you look at, you know, trends over decades, that mortality gap really hasn't changed much between black and white men, despite having all these advanced therapies. And, you know, we we can spend a lot of time talking about equal access settings and um, the impact of that and how that can potentially uh, get rid of some of the disparities and outcomes. but And this was actually studied and uh, uh, published in JAMA last year. When you look at certain equal access settings, namely the VA, if you factor in the fact that Black men present at a younger age and have a higher incidence of more aggressive disease, let's say intermediate and high-risk disease, and then you assume that a 10-year metastatic rate, even receiving therapy in an equal access settings, Uh, that disparity in incidence is going to carry over with equal 10-year metastatic rates between Black and white men um, within risk groups so that that mortality difference still persists even in an equal access setting. So if you're starting off sort of on unequal footing and your metastatic rate is the same and you may receive the same treatment, your mortality rate is probably going to be very similar because of where we started off in the beginning. So that's one thing to keep in mind. And now when it comes to a lot of these therapies, what we're seeing um, is intensification of treatment. And, you know, again, Kristen outlined chemotherapy is used more upfront, front, um, novel hormone therapy. And now we're even talking about triplet therapy, where we have ADT, novel hormone therapy, chemotherapy, all three of these agents being used. And when you look at a lot of the trials where these studies uh, published um, improvements in overall survival, the... number of Black patients is extremely low. You know, the overall percentages are usually less than 5% in most of these studies. So when you try to translate a lot of the clinical trial data and then present these to Black patients when they're presented with metastatic disease, you have to realize that, you know, that population where this was studied may not be directly applicable. But even then, you know, going back to clinical trials and research in Black communities, another thing is that, because of the low enrollment, um, you're already sort of dealing with a population where there's medical mistrust. And then you're going to talk about adding additional therapies on top of studies, sorry, therapies that have been studied. The black community may not be that willing to undergo treatment intensification. um, When in the very beginning, they were never included in trials of the initial hormone therapies. So that's something to consider as well. So, you know, kind of summarizing altogether is because of the high burden of mortality an advanced prostate cancer state and this, you know, sort of explosion of therapies, it it may not readily um, get uh, the uptake in the black community that we hope to see. And that's something to consider in the treatment of advanced prostate cancer.
0: So, Chad, one of the things that you mentioned and even Christian brought it up before that was that a lot of these treatments are moving earlier and earlier into the treatment paradigm. So, you know, there was a time not so long ago when a lot of these novel hormonal therapy or chemotherapy um, was really in the castrate resistance state, right? And and now as we more studies have come out, we see that these drugs are moving earlier and earlier into the, the treatment paradigm. And, uh, and probably will continue to do so. And, and honestly, as more therapies come out, uh, those two will probably move earlier and earlier um, into, the, into the treatment of, of patients with prostate cancer. So that's sort of my prelude to ask you a little bit about um, the concept of financial toxicity for advanced prostate cancer, um, you know, both overall, but, but particularly based on what you just talked about the implications for, you know, minority populations, uh, uh, minority, specifically black populations.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, that's a big concern with, again, you know, this, all these different therapies that are, that are um, coming out now. So, you know, when abiraterone first came out, for example, it was something like $7,000 a month for treatment and that already had everybody's head spinning thinking, well, who's going to be able to afford this. And if you look at, you know, urban communities, are, you know, South Florida, for example, um, the, the black community in South Florida, especially close to our catchment area for Jackson Memorial, University of Miami, um, our population generally speaking is from a lower socioeconomic uh, status. So when you talk about spending thousands of dollars for these therapies, it's a real challenge for the men who are at the highest burden of, of dying from the disease. And a lot of people say, well, you know, there's social programs and you speak to a lot of the the reps from these companies and they'll say, you know, we could get this person on a program and it should cover most of the drug. But then you realize that in order to get on these programs, you you need some resources to apply for them. You need somebody who's going to be your advocate to, you know, provide some of this information um, that is required to go into these applications and then follow through. And what you find is that a lot of the um, Black men and our Hispanic population as well, there's a significant delay in getting these therapies, even if it gets covered um, because these these applications don't go through in time and they're kind of, you know, running around out there, not having any treatment at all. And then by the time you get them on therapy, you know, the disease probably has progressed even more. So the, the financial toxicity is, is significant. And then even for some who are insured, you know, there's a copay and then, you know, thinking about other areas of advanced prostate cancer when for example we use sbrt to metastatic sites and you're you're adding that to therapy and now you're you're asking somebody to take time off from work and to go to you know uh, radiation therapy even if it's just for you know a week it can still be a significant challenge particularly in black and hispanic communities in urban areas um and and that issue of financial toxicity often causes um, men in these communities to shy away from going to the doctor because they know that if they go there and they hear their cancer is worse or they need more therapy, it's going to hit them in the pocket and it's going to be a big challenge. So why am I going to show up there in the first place? I can't deal with this stress. So you know, we we really need to figure out a better way to address the financial toxicity. Although again, we're we're all in favor of treatment intensification and using as many therapies to improve overall survival. If you can't get those in uh, without a significant um, damage to their their financial well being, it, it really is is going to be a moot point.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, Chad. As you're saying this, you, you know, you realize that that a lot of these concepts and themes, um, and we've spoken a lot about the Black and Hispanic communities. But it's interesting, you know, not far from where I I mean, I'm in Central Pennsylvania. And you have rural Appalachia, which is, you know, probably about two hours, hour and a half, two hours, where if you look at the socioeconomics, it's a totally different demographic, right, than, than mm-hmm. Black, Hispanic, it's essentially, you know, white, Caucasian. But the socioeconomics are very depressed in general in Appalachia. Uh, access, to your point of SBRT, that's not a part of reality of somebody being able to get a seven-day course or even a 28-day course, for example, of radiation therapy. If there's no access, so as you were saying that, I realized, you know, that that these concepts obviously are are true, uh, even across race and and you know geography itself um, can unfortunately play a big factor in in some of these variations that you could see in care.
2: Yeah, no, definitely, and and you know, at, at the end of the day, I think socioeconomics, above all else is a big driver for health outcomes. And we can talk a lot about social determinants of health and how that impacts uh, survival. Um, but I think a big challenge here is the fact that, again, in the in the very beginning, when black men have a higher incidence of prostate cancer present with more mm-hmm. advanced disease, for them, that added burden, financial burden is sort of, you know, I hate to say, it, but the nail in the coffin. I mean, it's, it's going to be a big challenge for these men to get these therapies that can potentially be life saving. Sure.
0: So now maybe I'll I'll turn it over to b- both of you in, in any particular order, um, but, but talk a little bit about community engagement, um, support services. I mean, we've sort of outlined the scope of the problem, so it's always sort of nice to talk a little bit about what potential solutions, or solutions is probably a simplistic term, but resources are available and what we should be cognizant of as healthcare providers for advanced prostate cancer care. So maybe a little bit about community engagement, support services uh, for advanced disease and either of you and, and yeah. then maybe the other to weigh in afterwards.
2: Yeah, I, I'm happy to, to start. Well, you know, one of the big uh, pushes I think when it comes to, um, you know, community engagement and also making sure that <laughs> uh, minority communities feel welcome is having a diverse workforce. Um, the providers the folks that care for patients with advanced prostate cancer day in, day out. Um, when when the workforce is diverse and the patients feel comfortable interacting with them, engaging with them, discussing their affairs and concerns um, at a level where they feel uh, racially and culturally comfortable, I think that helps to, to improve care. And I think it helps them to uh, be willing to, you know, or take on different aspects of care that otherwise they'd be very nervous to engage in, like treatment intensification and that sort of stuff. So, diversity in workforce, I think, is a, a crucial aspect of advanced prostate cancer care.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that we as urologists have done a better job of late to taking a look in the mirror and realizing our kind of lack of diversity historically, and we've um, made some significant advancements in that area. And we know that that's going to translate into improvements in, in patient care. But as Chad nicely highlighted, these clinical disparities are, are real. And um, is it is it related to access, as he kind of highlighted? Maybe, maybe not. We have to be aware that there's evidence showing that there's differences in counseling of patients um, who come from different backgrounds and so I think we need to be aware of our own individual biases and um, sort of systemic biases and considering race as a, as a social construct and trying to eliminate the disparities that result from thinking about it in that paradigm um, and and maybe along those lines, if we're better in um, kind of addressing this earlier than prevention before prostate cancer becomes advanced, um, maybe improved as well. Like for instance, you know, PSA testing. Um, I don't think we should be treating patients differently when we're talking about PSA testing. Um, And so, you know, catching things, Earlier may may be of benefit as well
2: yeah, yeah. And, and and another area you know where I think um, it's important to engage is is you know we all come from big academic medical centers and you know oftentimes patients again in, especially minority, minority populations may see our medical centers as being unreachable, unattainable, unfriendly. You know, we need to do a better job of getting out into these communities and showing them that we're a part of the community too. You know, so if, if you're going to go to Vanderbilt, if Vanderbilt's going to come to you and you see a Vanderbilt, you know, um, prostate cancer screening bus or something in your neighborhood all the time, you may feel comfortable going to Vanderbilt for treatment. Same thing with, you know, Sylvester Cancer Center, University of Miami. And um, I, I think that engagement from, our academic medical centers where a lot of the research is happening, where a lot of the you know breakthroughs are happening, having that familiarity with them will allow patients from minority groups to, to feel more comfortable approaching for treatment.
0: No, it's great. It's a really, um, it, it's a really great point. It's interesting. I, I, I was doing a podcast maybe, I don't know, maybe six months ago with um, Adam Murphy, who's at Northwestern. And, and to your point, Chad, Adam made a, a really good point, which really talked about uh, accrual of minority populations into clinical trials and, and the, the, the challenges in that, that, that's in general not very good. It's re- relatively poor overall if you just look at trials. And one of the things he said, which I think you sort of highlighted, was um, making a concerted effort that that research team is a diverse team that the research team is actually diverse enough that when they were approaching patients um, there was some degree of connection or commonality, if you want to say that. And, and he really said he made a point of that because I think he does some work in, in disparities as well as Mm -hmm. in um, uh, well, disparities with regard to prostate cancer and also some stuff on vitamin D. But one of the big things for trial accrual for him was really having a more diverse team that really facilitated trial accrual.
2: Yeah, no, definitely. And, and I think also given the fact that, uh, a lot of these trials in, in prostate cancer are sponsored by industry. I think these companies also need to be aware of the importance of, of diversity in not just the patient population, but in terms of the investigators that they seek to, to have on these trials. So, you know, it, it, Every single one of us starts from the you know, providers to the industry, um, to national research bodies. Having a diverse workforce there is, is key to really reaching out to all these populations and hope, hopefully narrowing that disparity uh, gap in mortality.
0: So maybe I'll, I'll uh, pick your brain each for some sort of parting, parting thoughts. Maybe Kristen first, any, any key take home for our audience Uh, at the end of this sort of half hour?
1: Sure. Um, Well, I would encourage folks to try not to be intimidated by advanced prostate cancer. I think, um, you know, it is somewhat complex, but there are discrete categories for thinking about each individual patient as you sit down and counsel them on next steps and whether you're treating them yourself or you're going to be referring them to um, a colleague who you collaborate with, I think it's important and necessary to have a, a basic understanding so that um, we can help our, our patients get what they need and understand um, sort of next steps for this um, sometimes intimidating and uh, challenging space to navigate.
2: Chad, yourself, any any final thoughts? Yeah. Um, you know, basically, again, just reiterating that the mortality gap between Black and white men with prostate cancer is real and it's significant and hasn't changed over many decades. It's an area where we need a lot of research and to put a lot of resources into figuring out how we can narrow that gap. Um, and another area that important take home is the issue of financial toxicity and how that impacts particularly, um, black and Hispanic communities in, in rural and urban settings. And that although, you know, treatment intensification is, is proven to be effective, um, there is a huge drawback in black and Hispanic communities, um, particularly those that have socioeconomic challenges into accepting these therapies and this treatment to be approached in a very nuanced way.
0: That's super, that's great. Well, I really wanna thank uh, Christian, Chad, really wanna thank you both, uh, really enjoyed it. I think you, you summarized, uh, summarized where we are really quite, quite nicely. And of course, always impossible to capture all of this in, in a 30 minute podcast, but I think you both did uh, really uh, wonderfully in, in sort of summarizing you know the high level concepts and I really do thank you both uh, very much for your time uh, this evening.
2: Awesome. Thank, thank you. you
0: for having me. Uh, to our audience, again, thank you for joining us. Uh, for more information, please visit us at auanet.org university. And I hope you both have a, a very pleasant
1: evening.